0: China is the biggest greenhouse gas emitter in the world. They have an ambitious target of reaching carbon neutrality in 2060 and peaking their emissions before 2030.
1: I am certainly now trying to paint a very rosy picture with regard to the level of ambition. but From a political and diplomatic point of view, it indeed positions China at you know, a, a, a higher level
0: than some of the other major emitters. Today I'm speaking with Li Xiao, Senior Climate and Energy Policy Officer at Greenpeace East Asia. We talk about China's position in the international climate negotiations. What is the relationship to the United States of America and how do they see the European leadership in the fight against climate change? Welcome to Planet A, a podcast on climate change. My name is Dan Jørgensen, I am Minister of Climate, Energy and Utilities in Denmark. In a series of conversations, I asked some of the world's leading experts, policy makers, and activists how to stem climate change. We, the
1: human species, are confronting a planetary emergency.
0: For more than 30 years, the science has been crystal clear. The reason I believe we need to act now is because the facts are staring us in the face. The time to answer humankind's greatest challenge is now so this gives us the best possible
1: shot to save the one planet we've got
0: there is no plan b because we do not have planet b you're listening to planet a a podcast on climate change and what to do about it li xiao works for greenpeace in east asia Apart from that, he's also often used as an expert on Chinese domestic policies on climate change and green transformation. Li Xiao has authored many interesting articles on Chinese climate and energy issues for an international audience. He's often used as an expert in media outlets such as New York Times, BBC and The Guardian. China aims to be carbon neutral in 2060 and peak their emissions before 2030. And today I speak with Li Xiao about how China will reach these targets and which role China plays in the international negotiations. Hello, sir, and welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you, Minister, for having me. I've been uh, listening to some of your previous
1: episodes and uh, i learned a lot from them. So thanks for having me.
0: Well, thank you for that. And we, we met also in, in person at COP meeting in Madrid. And of course, we're hoping to be able to meet in Glasgow last year, but we'll have to wait for that to happen. But maybe can you start by sharing with, with the listeners what uh, exactly your job entails?
1: Right. So um, I joined Greenpeace um, about 10 years ago. Um, I, was, uh, I was hired actually right after college. Um, That was right after the Copenhagen Climate Conference. So I actually missed um, that COP. But the reason that I was hired was Greenpeace here in China uh, was looking for someone uh, to cover the negotiation of of international environmental issues, particularly climate change. So I jumped on board in in 2010, um, we covered uh, all the COPs and most of the intersections since then. Uh, but also I have a domestic, uh, dimension of my, my work, which is to cover China's domestic, uh, uh you know, environmental policy development. That includes air pollution, water pollution, uh, biodiversity issues, uh, but also ocean and fishery. So, uh, the way that I, I normally present what I do is I work at the intersection, uh, between the international and the domestic on some of the most you know, pressing environmental challenges that China and the, and the world uh, face. Great,
0: great. Okay, thank you so much for, for, for that. Maybe we should now turn to the international uh, negotiations, where obviously also China plays a, a major role. In 2014, President Xi and, and President Obama uh, concluded a historic agreement uh, that paved the way for the Paris Agreement. Now, I think everybody agrees that if we are to have more progress in, in the COP process, uh, if we are to have a real chance of actually then fulfilling the Paris Accord, then, then a close collaboration between uh, China and the U.S. is, is absolutely uh, essential. How do you see the Sino-American uh, relationship on climate change issues uh, developing now, also with the change of president in, in the United States? And
1: minister as you rightly pointed out uh, the u s china climate uh, cooperation uh, in the run-up to paris uh was a, was a very important uh you know factor to the success of the paris um, you know climate summit um but but i think a lot has changed uh since then um, number one the 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 u s china bilateral you know relationship has deteriorated uh to a rock bottom over the The past four years. Uh, Number two, um, you know, the um, the U.S., um, I I guess, um, uh, has been backsliding um, on some of the previous commitments made uh, by the Obama administration. Um, I think I think the the third thing that is uh, very different is um, uh, even on the on the agenda of, of climate change. Um, there are a lot of discussions both in the U.S. and China, uh, questioning whether you know we can just simply replicate uh, the Obama Sea model. So I think I think the bottom line message here is a lot has changed, um, and, um, uh, and, and 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 the new situation means that uh, uh, to replicate a bilateral uh, you know cooperation will not be. Uh, you know uh, as simple as a few years ago, uh, with that said, uh, it is also fair to say that uh, there is really no global solution on climate change uh, without the two biggest emitters uh, at least working towards the same direction right so so I think that is really the bottom line that we need to we need to achieve uh you know over the next few years, of course, taking advantage of the changing political situation. Uh, on, the, uh, on the U.S. side. Um, uh, but you know, to what extent the two countries can go towards the same direction holding each other's hands? Uh, that's very much still an opening question.
0: So, so if you were to outline the, the biggest priorities for China in, in the coming COP negotiations, what would they be?
1: Well, yeah, of, of course, I, I think, um, you know, um, Chi- I mean, there, there has been over the past uh, half a year quite important progress, um, you know, for, for our domestic climate agenda. Last year in September, uh, the Chinese president for the first time committed the country to achieve carbon neutrality by the year 2060. Uh, and that commitment was followed uh, in December at the Climate Ambition Summit to further enhance China's near-term ambition. for numerical targets in our uh, nationally determined contribution uh, now have all been ratcheted up. So these are these are quite important uh, development, uh, at least from our domestic point of view. Um, and as a result of that, there there has been very vibrant debates here in China over the past few months, on what is the role of our different provinces in contributing to peaking, for example, the emissions early? What is the role of our uh, key emitting industries, iron, steel, cement, and chemistries? Uh, What is the role of them in contributing to peaking early and carbon neutrality? So uh, that's, that's, I I guess, what I see rather uh, positive development but on the other hand uh, we still believe um, that the chinese ambition particularly the near-term ambition is still rather modest and it should be enhanced Uh, so this is an area where we need to concentrate our domestic effort on and i think this is an an area uh, where future international engagement and and cooperation can make a difference namely Uh, you know, the engagement between the European partners and China, but also the U.S. and China?
0: Yes, and that brings me to to a different question, which is um, very often when people try and analyze what's actually going on in in the international negotiations, and especially with regards to the role of China, it's been pointed out that one of the reasons why uh, not a lot has happened within the last couple of years has been that Uh, China's been waiting to see what will happen in the U.S., Uh, and as long as U.S. is not a part of of the agreement, then really we probably shouldn't expect much action from from China either. And also, of course, that China and and other actors, obviously, but, but, but China specifically, are paying a very close attention to what's going on in the EU
1: yeah no i think um uh, in terms of uh, how uh the chinese look at uh, the eu china v- versus the the u s china relationship um i th- i think um you know um, it's it's fair to say the u s china bilateral re- relationship in the chinese eyes uh, has always been the predominant and the most important one um and i, I think here we need to realize that uh, uh, there are Uh, you know, uh, several things that are in this bilateral relationship that is just now in the EU-China one. For example, some of the the more strategic uh, and and political issues, territorial-related issues, the high politics um, that exist in the US-China relationship, you know, is is not featured as permanently in the EU-China relationship. So I think there is a, let's say, a a, a qualitative difference, if you will, between these two sets of bilateral relationship that that we need to realize. Uh, But I think when it comes to uh, the climate diplomacy or or the climate engagement, uh, the way or the metaphor that I like to use uh, previously is that it is kind of a tricycle dynamic in the sense that the European Union in terms of his domestic politics, in terms of its level of ambition, in terms of its role of setting precedents, right for example the fifty five percent NDC enhancement that you just had a few months ago is uh, of course at uh, at the forefront. It's the front whale, whereas the u s and China are the two back whales, and they are more or less in parallel with each other in the sense that uh, uh if for example from the us side there has uh, been uh, repeated uh, demands that there needs to be some uh, symmetry between these two countries but i this is kind of the metaphor that i used for the past few years uh, i think one you know new question that i'm asking uh, myself is whether this this dynamic still applies whether we actually need to adjust the way that you know that we look at the g3 dynamic in the sense that uh Uh, it seems the U.S. is still lacking sustainable political conditions to uh, ensure that the country will progress on the climate agenda over the medium to long long term. I think that lack of political conditions have already been well uh, reflected over the past four years. Whereas uh, the Chinese situation, of course, is not ideal is still not yet at the level that will help us, you know, get to world below 2 degree or 1.5 degree. But there seems to be stronger political consensus in the Chinese system to at least progress climate action or the climate agenda. The only question there is the speed of that progression. So in a sense, you are still fending the European Union leading this dynamic and then Chinese somewhere in the middle and The U.S. in a way you can argue is lagging behind. This has, of course, already been reflected in the most recent round of NDC enhancement, right? The European Union has already uh, presented its offer. The Chinese, in the uh, in the December Climate Action Summit, has outlined its general level of vision. Uh, sorry, its, its its general level of vision, um, and then you are finding the U.S. who is still struggling. With delivering, uh,
0: is twenty six to twenty eight percent emission reduction commitment. I think uh, if I had had this conversation with with an analyst from Washington, they they probably not put it exactly the same way. They they might say that they think that it's China that's lacking in a way that actually illustrates our problem. That from Beijing it looks like the U.S. is not doing enough. From Washington it looks like China is not doing enough, and. I just hope that we don't end up in a gridlock. And I I think the most essential development that needs to happen is that all countries and all groups of countries need to see this not as um, a zero-sum game, where if you do more than others, then you'll lose in competitiveness, but a plus-sum game in which actually uh, a green development, a green transformation, anything you do to reduce your emissions it doesn't hurt your competitiveness. It actually gives you an advantage. So imagine if China and, and US, instead of looking at each other and saying, we're not doing anymore before they are doing anymore, they were looking at each other and saying, okay, we're competing on this. We we, we want to be in front. I don't know whether or not that's just a naive hope, but I can definitely tell you that that is predominantly the view from, from Europe. The reason why we are doing what we're doing is it's not only idealistic, it's not only to save the planet, ho- hopefully, and, and, and obviously that's a big part of it, but, but it's also because we see it as a growth strategy for our region.
1: No, Minister, I, I completely agree with you, and, and let me just again elaborate why this is kind of a you know, rather intentionally provocative uh, uh, comment that I'm saying the EU is uh, you know, leading, and then you have China somewhere in the middle, and the US is lagging behind. And again, just to elaborate that point, um, I, I think one thing that people should not underestimate, uh, particularly with regard to the, the Chinese recent carbon neutrality and Peking early announcement, is the following. It is basically, you know an effort of um, the political leaders in this country uh, to address uh the 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 question on whether we have consensus or not with regard to progress on the climate uh you know actions, regardless of what happens elsewhere in the world. And that, that answer from the Chinese leadership is yes, we will do this, uh, not for the sake of others, regardless of what will be the situation in the US. So um, I am certainly not trying to paint a very rosy picture with regard to the level of ambition of the Chinese offer. It is clearly not enough. It's not in line with well below two, let alone 1.5 degrees. But from a political and diplomatic point of view, it indeed positions China at you know, a, a, a higher level than some of the other major emitters who still do not have that domestic level political consensus. And I think this is something that we should not underestimate. And this is hopefully a basis for us to continue to build further political willingness in China for climate action.
0: Yes, well, no, no, well, I agree with that evaluation that the decisions made by the Chinese government recently on carbon neutrality in 2060 and peak emissions before 2030. And I can definitely say that 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 uh, in in Europe in general and and in Denmark we have applauded and and think that it's an extremely positive uh, trend on on many of these issues. We are in a, a situation that's quite historic in the sense that Yes, we compete obviously in the global marketplace, but we will all get richer probably from this development. So it's not a question about who gets the biggest piece of the cake always. Sometimes it's also about making the cake bigger, so to speak.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I like your metaphor there. I think again, it is really about, uh, you know, racing to the top as opposed to, uh, you know, racing, racing to the uh, bottom. And I also also hope that, uh, um, you know, there there, there is this realization from, you know, uh, all of these three major emitters, the European Union, the the US and China, uh, that will, you know, the the geopolitics, uh, you know, changes, uh, uh, which which would probably demand more uh, competitiveness flavor uh, in our climate engagement. We we should still realize that uh, for the competition to work, we would need, at least need to talk to each other and cooperate so that we set a common set of rules for the game within which we can compete. So I think I think you know how to get how to manage the tension, or reconcile the competition and the cooperation is really the the most important question uh, for you know climate diplomats over the next few years. Uh, and this is particularly true in their engagement with China. And I think uh, on this one, uh, we need to be very careful and strategic. Um and you know and, and to think about what is really the best approach uh so that uh we can we can propel uh, you know uh, further political desire and willingness from the Chinese side on this particular agenda.
0: Yes and I guess you can also say that uh Domestic policy in China is actually also global policy, since China, of course, is the biggest uh, emitter in in, in the world. And uh, can you give us an overview uh, of the development of China's energy and and climate policy in the decade that you've uh, followed it closely?
1: Sure. I think maybe maybe just to go a little bit further back uh, into history, you know, the, um, the country really started its, its reform and opening up in the, in the late 1970s. And then since then, we've seen pretty much three, four decades of continuous economic growth and prosperity. Um, you know, associated with that, unfortunately, is uh, a huge amount of environmental deficits um, that the country managed to accumulate, uh, particularly from the 1990s, but also entering into the early 2000s. Uh, You know, the conditions of air, water, soil, you know, are are, are really, really uh, quite severe. Um, But I think the turning point um, uh, started to come in the early 2010s. Uh, And that's also, you know, when when I started uh, my career Um, in uh, the years of 2011, 2012, uh, you know, a big part of China uh, experienced very very bad air pollution episodes, what we call air apocalypse uh, back then. Uh, severe, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, level of uh, PM, you know, uh, pollutions, uh, and I think that was really kind of the uh, the, the 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 Silent Spring moment that struck the country, uh, in the sense that public awareness was really getting high. Um, there was also a lot of policy and political attention on this particular issue. Uh, and it, re- it also triggered, uh, you know, a large amount of subsequent policies uh, to help us address uh, this situation. Um, so, so that, I, I, I guess, in retrospect, is what I see as, as the turning point. Um, but with that said, you know, the, the environmental progress here in China over the past decades I've always, you know, have always been kind of two steps forward, one step back. Uh, I think still the most essential challenge that we have is how do we transform our energy sector, right? the way that we produce our energy. The country is endowed with abundant uh, resource on coal, and we've been relying on that dirty little rack for our economic growth, um, you know, for the past decades. Um, the coal still is, uh, you know, more than sixty percent of uh, of where uh, we got our energy from. It has significant air pollution, water, and of course, climate implications. So, how do we gradually move away from that to embrace more renewable energy? I think that will be a, a an essential theme uh, for the environmental governance here in my country, uh, still in the future.
0: Yes, and, and, and maybe we should dive into to that a little bit more. There's no doubt that when you have a, a, a huge population like, like China does, that are experiencing uh, rising uh, living standards and economic growth in the society as a whole, obviously this also entails uh, an increase in, in energy consumption. Now, if that increase is covered by renewables and combined with uh, efforts in energy efficiency, then that's not a problem. Actually, it's the opposite because a big country like China will then drive uh, a transformation that other countries will also benefit from. But on the other hand, if some of that growth is covered, as it's for understandable reasons has been in the past with fossil energy, Then, of course, we have a big problem, especially since many of these investments in a coal power plant, for instance, just to give a concrete example, are huge investments that need sometimes decades in order to be paid back, so to speak. So can you elaborate a little bit about, first of all, the the magnitude of the challenge? And second, how the Chinese uh, administration is dealing with the, the, the challenge?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, you know the the challenge is um, is profound. I mean, we we are the factory of the world, and as you rightly pointed out, Minister, we are also a very populous uh, country. Uh, so, how do we manage our our development on one hand, but also on the other hand, to decarbonize? Uh, and also noting that uh, uh, when a country like China is doing it, it is doing it in a much more compressed time frame. Than many uh, countries in the West, um, so um, I th- I th- I think again the biggest challenge is how do we manage to reduce our uh, reliance on coal consumption? Uh, you know, uh, over over the next decades, uh, I think here um, you know we have been making some progress uh, as a result of the the public and political awareness raised. Uh, you know, because of air pollution. Uh, but also increasingly, uh, you know, the, the, the realization of the country that we also need to embrace further climate action. Um, in, and, and in fact, over the past decade, we have been uh, steadily declining the share of coal in our overall energy consumption. Again, the challenge is how can we accelerate that, right? How can we speed up, for example, the, uh, you know, uh, utilization of renewable energy, um, I think I, th- I think that will be uh, again a, a very very important uh, important challenge over over the next decades. Um, but I, I, I think there is also uh, uh, I guess a, a positive side of the Chinese climate story, which which is indeed renewable energy. We have been the largest manufacturer, uh, you know, investor and the, a, and utilizer of uh, uh, you know wind and solar um, energy. Uh, the country, I, I think, it's fair to say, also made a, uh, a quite important contribution in drastically bringing down the cost of wind and solar equipments. Um, but again, here uh, our challenge is um, how can we speed up things, right? Um, and 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 we, I, I think, the, the good news is we have again managed to conquer the. Uh, technical or the engineering uh, challenges. What we need further is to tackle the political challenges. Uh, The Chinese electricity system is still arranged in a highly command and control uh, based logic. Uh, It is not really a, a market that is based on simple supply and demand theory. Uh, and the reason why we, we haven't really managed to reform uh, the electricity system is because there are indeed a lot of entrenched political interests in that system, uh, particularly from uh, you know our coal industry. Uh, the system is designed in a very, very specific way to favor them, to grant them more hours of operation uh, at expense uh, of renewable energy sources. So as we embrace more and more renewable energy, uh, then the question is, how will we also transform our political and you know electricity system to you know allow renewable energy to take a bigger share of the pie? And of course, that is a, a quite challenging political discussion.
0: Yes, of course, I I, I understand uh, those uh, obstacles. And sometimes, obviously, it's also, on one hand, a little bit concerning that there's, of course, still a huge amount of coal-based electricity in in the grid. On the other hand, if you look at the actual numbers, the numbers and the pace of the increasing renewable energy in, in China, that's astounding. Look at wind, both land onshore and especially probably for the future also offshore and solar uh, there's nowhere else in the world where, where the transformation has gone as fast as it has in sure. China. So,
1: I mean, in terms of wind uh, and solar, right, uh, when I joined Greenpeace uh, a decade ago, uh, we were really actively uh, promoting those energy sources. Um, that was when uh, China was at the very initial stage in setting up, uh, you know, a policy framework support the development of wind and solar energy. Um, and over the over the last decade, what I observed is uh, number one, um, China domestically um, has become really the powerhouse um, of renewable energy, uh, you know, uh, manufacturing, um, you know, and, and and in this process, of course, uh, you know, brought down the cost of, of renewable energy uh, uh, drastically. Uh, but number two, the policy framework that the government set uh, is, a, in general, a very predictable and you know favorable one. You know some of the key designing features include you know uh, feed in tariff, right? Uh, concepts that your your listeners will be familiar with, and and that really helped boost uh, the domestic utilization of wind and solar uh, energy. Um, but again. Uh, What I will say, uh, you know, on the renewable energy development side over the last decade is we have managed our mission quite uh, successfully in phase one, which is to bring renewable energy from zero percent in our energy system to somewhere uh, around 20 to 30 percent. The next question is how do we, you know, further unleash the potential of renewable energy? Because without that, we all know we will not manage complete decarbonization. And that's where the challenge, uh, you know, becomes from an engineering one to a political one. How do we design our political, you know, uh, electricity system to uh, allow renewable Energy to cut into the pie of fossil-based energy sources like coal-fired power plants?
0: This discussion so far has primarily been about the big energy systems for the society as a whole. What if we look into a more specific part of of the energy system, which is the transport sector? Uh, Now, whether or not that energy is is fossil or electric or maybe even uh, based on on new technologies like uh, hydrogen or Power2x, makes a, a, a big difference in, in all countries, but obviously in, in China makes a, a huge difference also globally, not only because of the, the emissions connected to it, but also because of the potential in, in, in changing the market dynamics globally. Uh, when China enters a market as a producer or as, as on the demand side, that really makes a difference. So can you, can you say a little bit about what's actually going on in, in the transport sector in China?
1: Sure. No, that's, that's definitely another very important uh, sector for decarbonization. I think in general, the situation here in China is um, uh, the energy sector, the industrial sectors, such as iron, steel, cement. Um, they have been the primary uh, receivers of political and policy level attention. There has been a lot of uh, discussions on how they can decarbonize, um, and there is also a lot of you know advocacy work going into those direction. Transportation is is a little bit more uh, lagging behind uh, than those sectors, um, and I I I think as we uh, find ways. To at least start the, the decarbonization in the energy sector, transportation will, you know, increasingly become more and more relevant. There are a few things there uh, in the transportation sector. One is, um, uh, it is of course still growing, right, uh, in terms of energy consumption, but also uh, emissions. Uh, so how can we kind of uh, 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 decelerate uh, that uh, that uh, growth uh, without, of course, affecting uh, you know economic development um, I think one way there is of course through better planning, either urban planning or the the overall national planning of the transportation networks. Um, I think this is an area that China still needs a lot of work. Uh, it can also learn from experiences uh, from from elsewhere um the The second thing that I would say is um how to employ better and cleaner technology in this particular sector. Um, I, th- I think the good news here is um, uh, that the Chinese companies are increasingly leading the world with, with regard to R&D on um, technologies such as, you know, electric vehicles. Um, we are also, uh, you know, uh, 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 becoming relatively fast by international standard in terms of employing, uh, you know, EV uh, 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 really just on the road, in, in practice. Um, you know, we are now really the leading consumer of uh, electric vehicles. And there, uh, I, I, I'm also seeing a lot of very interesting and promising business models. So it's not just only about cars, but also business models that would further unleash um, this, this particular technology. Um, so I, I think similar uh, to wind and solar, um, there, The good news here is there, there there, will be a lot of progress in China, and I think with more time, um, the rest of the world can really look at China and draw lessons from our experience.
0: Yes, because also, as you mentioned earlier, there's a, a close link between air pollution and and uh, climate change issues. Having a more electrified transport sector could also, in, in, in many of the large cities and in China obviously help remedy the air pollution problem, I guess. Yes, absolutely, absolutely.
1: Um, Although with regard to EV, uh, you know, one quite particular environmental concern is still uh, we need to employ EV, but also at the same time decarbonize our electricity system, right? Because uh, if our electricity system is still heavily Coal-based, then uh, the climate and and air pollution benefits of EV won't be maximized.
0: The fact that there's still a lot of work to do, and the fact that we are very far from from reaching the targets that that we that we hope that goes for China, but that actually goes for all countries on the planet. Absolutely. Uh, well, thank you so much, uh, Li Xiu. Uh, it's been a very interesting conversation, and. Uh, Stay healthy and, and well in, in Beijing, uh, and, and thanks again. Well, thanks for, again for having me, Minister. Uh, all the best of luck to you, too. You've listened to Planet A, a podcast on climate change and what to do about it. If you want to know more about the climate policies of Denmark, you can follow my ministry, the Danish Ministry of Climate, Energy and Utilities, on social media platforms such as Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.